many sales leaders focus on results. Results, they have the war room of results. Everyone has results. Share of wallets, new logo acquisition, blah, 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 blah. That's the symptom of whatever the team did. It's to a T what you described. And so it backs up and they have this great analogy in the book where activities drive objectives, drive results, where my daughter comes home with a B on her report card. I can't snap my fingers and change that to an A. That's never going to happen. But if she has a weekly quiz in math and I study with her for 30 minutes a day, that's the activity, then she'll get an A on that quiz every Friday. So I just need to spend 30 minutes with her and I need to measure that. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was AJ Bruno. And AJ is the co-founder and CEO at Quotopath. Now, this is a fun conversation because we get into an important topic in sales. And one a little controversial, actually. It's, does it still make sense to pay commissions? I mean, should there be incentive compensation for sellers? Interesting enough, there's actually two sides to this argument. So we explore the idea of how you fairly measure the value of a seller's contribution to the outcome of a sale, and then how do you fairly base, or how do you fairly compensate sellers based on that contribution? We also dig into the topic of what the circumstances are where paying commission doesn't make sense, and then AJ and I dig into the whole topic of quota. Is quota as a way to measure performances is still relevant in today's sales world. And if not, why not? And what could we use instead of quota to measure sales achievement? And then AJ shares some great advice as a second-time founder about how to scale and manage your sales teams. So again, another great episode with a lot of great practical takeaways today. Before we get to AJ, though, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. AJ, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Andy. Pleasure being here. So I have to ask, what does the AJ stand for? Oh, boy. Uh, the AJ is Anthony James Bruno the Third. A third. So- my my dad goes by Tony. My grandfather went by Anthony. And I've always, my entire life, gone by AJ. I tried to change it in college to Anthony. I uh, worked at a restaurant. And my first day, they printed on the name tag Anthony. I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to be Anthony. <laughs> so I went by Anthony like the first couple of weeks. And then I started becoming friends with people at the restaurant outside of work. And yeah. they started calling me AJ. And so it was this weird, like, second month situation where half the restaurant was calling me Anthony and half was calling me AJ. And I walked in and my supervisor sat me down. She, she goes, hey, is your name AJ? I'm like, well, yeah, it is. Anthony James Bruno III. And like, why do you call, make us call you Anthony? I'm like, well, your name, the name tag was already printed. It was lovely there. And she was pretty upset, actually. <laughs> so I, um, I, I went by AJ at the restaurant and then that, and now I'm AJ for the rest of my life. Now the world knows. So have you made that your official name, like on passports and so on? Uh, no. I've, and I've had issues in the past where the third is sometimes, I just got my passport renewed. Like prior to COVID, it was like February. I got my passport renewed because I had a trip to London and uh, it, it, was, it was left off, but it's on my birth certificate. So I know I won't, I, I'm not even going to deal with the name change. I'm yeah. <laughs> where I yeah. Am. yeah. Especially with passports and so on. It's hard yeah. to do. All right, so for people who aren't familiar with Quotapath, tell us what you do. Quotapath, we are a commission tracking platform that's built specifically for sales teams. However, we do have parts of the app that are for finance and sales ops and rev ops and, I mean, really end-to-end. But we built it with the rep in mind first because it's mm-hmm. a problem that I dealt with leading sales teams where my entire team would approach me at the end of the month. They're like, hey, my spreadsheet says that I made this and you uh, paid me wrong. I'm like, what? Like, yeah, don't you remember that split deal? I'm like, oh, your stupid spreadsheet. So I just want to take the headache out of that and build a platform that everyone could transparently align to and see very clearly. Mm -hmm. We have Quotapath. Interesting. So how long have you guys been around? Uh, We are coming up to year three. April will be our third birthday. Nice. Young, but young in startup world. So it's... (laughs) We're, we're growing up into adolescence, I suppose, a little bit. <laughs> well, so 
one of the questions I wanted to ask and get into in the show is is one that's increasingly being talked about is so what's what's the future of incentive compensation in sales? Yeah. And and yeah, I know there's all this talk out there about you know, quote unquote modern sales, which is a term I I hate, by the way. But uh, and for one of the reasons like our compensation. I mean, we we measure performance and we pay for performance. Yeah, basically the same way we did 100 years ago. So not very modern at all. Right. And question is, is it is it still working? Yeah. I would just say, you know, let's start with that question. Is, you know, what's <laughs> should there be incentive compensation for salespeople? Yeah, I, I still, I mean, our name in our quota path and uh, quota in the name, it would be very tough for me to, to sit here and say, oh, no, get rid of quotas. I, I think there's a lot of folks that you have said, that are trying to monetize it and say, should salespeople even have targets? Should they have goals like that? And I, I mean, I very much say, yeah, they definitely should. Uh, we've seen a variety of changes. I think when um, everyone went into the inside model, there was a variety of things were happening. First off, you saw a handful of folks, uh, a handful of companies really lay off parts of their team just like overnight. Sure. Um, sure. and, I, and I realized that that was going to, that was like, that seems very brash. I, I obviously travel is a little bit different, but for a lot of industries, it just didn't seem like the right move to, to do it right off the bat. Uh, and then once that happened, a lot of people were scrambling and saying, you know what, we're just going to like get rid of uh, quotas right now, or we're, you're going to get a lift and then let's figure out what it is. And that kind of transitioned to the summer where lots of things happen in the summer, things like pick back up. And especially in software, a lot of uh, companies and organizations did really, really well and blew it out of the water. So mm -hmm. all uh, teams really not change so much what their quotas and targets were, were looking like. And, and I, I would have expected it probably to be a lot more, but people just don't like to upset that. And that's, that's the evolution. So you nailed it. Quotas haven't changed for 100 years. And what we have seen, it's a little bit like the tax code, where you'll add layers upon layers upon layers. And so when a brand new hire right out of school gets into an SDR, maybe even a closing role, if that still exists. I, my first role out of school in 2008 was a, a cold call to close role. Uh, they get into that role, and then they're handed a basically seven page document for them to sign on their incentive compensation management platform, which I hate that term. Mm. I hate that term, right. by the way. Um, so sales comp, which is an easy way to say it, having all those terms, it's like, well, I need like a PhD to explain my comp. That doesn't make so much sense. So we've actually seen them get a little bit more, even, even more complicated. Um, and we have a handful of teams that I've talked to that don't have their comp plan yet, which we're at the end of January and here we are, and they might not get it before oh, the end no. of January. Yeah. Sometimes didn't get mine. Didn't get mine. Sometimes till August. Yeah. So, so <laughs> not much is changing, honestly. And that's um, there. There's good and bad with that. Uh, I can get into like what I think should change. Well, yeah. Let's let's get into that because I. I mean, first of all, let's frame the discussion because I think there are circumstances where commission makes sense. Right. Um, you know, someplace where you could, or maybe we should start where perhaps it, it doesn't make sense uh, is, is that, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer that if, if sales really is a team sport in a company and you're selling me a complex technical product and lots of people play a role in getting the deal across the finish line, sales engineering, engineering itself, customers, uh, support, sales ops, whatever. Yeah. How do you, how do you disproportionately pay out more of the reward to the salesperson in that environment? Than, than the other people, right? So this, this is where it becomes a little bit of a math problem in that regard because that, so uh, I'll back up and give my history on this really quickly. Uh, so Quotapath is my second company I founded. Mm -hmm. The first company was Trendkite in Austin, Texas, and it was uh, in, in it was PR attribution. So if you're reading right. about Wall Street Journal, New York Times, we could identify and quantify the ROI on it. And uh, we we were very B2B sales heavy. So I ran that team. It grew to about 120 folks, account managers, SDR, mm -hmm. all the way through. Uh, and the, the thing that I always thought about with it was that customer journey piece of it. And how do you comp along the way? Uh, the, the, we didn't have SDRs to start with. I, I kept it really, really, really simple. It was done on bookings. It was 10% mm -hmm. 
bookings. You got a thousand dollar bonus if you hit your monthly target of twenty five thousand in new uh, bookings, and you got a thousand uh, dollar bonus if you hit your quarterly of seventy five k. We are monthly sales cycles, so monthly quotas. Super straightforward. Well, a couple things started to happen. The company grew and scaled. So mm-hmm. adding roles and inbound demos, marketing, of course. Right. right. And then we also started to get more mature with our metrics, and one of those metrics became. MRR, so monthly recurring. Mm-hmm. And so the team then wanted to switch to, to MRR. And I, I was fine with that, but <laughs> they wanted me to switch to MRR first and the rest of the team to be on bookings to kind of test this out. Because I would take on the financial plan number of the MRR number. It's like, fine. And then halfway through this, we switched to ARR. So it was like, well, now I'm just going to confuse my team even more. But what ended up happening was, was like once we got to ARR, I, I gave my sales managers uh, ARR comp plans, and I really pushed hard to get the entire team to switch to ARR. But the that the board level of the our VP of Finance didn't want to do that. They didn't want to upset anything. Like, well, now we have my management team working against my individual contributors on metrics because the the individual right. contributors going to come to me and want to get a two year deal done discounted at like twenty percent for a twenty thousand dollar booking number. And meanwhile, the ARR number is going to be $10,000 instead of the 12000 that they would get for a one-year contract. So it became kind of this nightmarish situation where I learned very quickly then that, oh, wait a second, <laughs> alignment and simplicity and getting the board and the sales team on the same page. So the science of sales and the art of sales on the same page and aligned on the same comp plan is really critically important. And unfortunately, a lot of companies don't have the opportunity to have that because they bring in a new VP of sales uh, leader, CFO comes in, new board member, all of these people have inputs to the alignment of a sales comp plan and that causes issue. I definitely think that the, the comp plan, if you have a strong enough sales leader, really does hinge on the VP of sales to get those all those inputs. They, they should act like a product leader in that regard take the inputs and then present to uh, to the CEO, to the board to get something signed off on. Right. But instead of focusing on the process part of it, though, is, is I want to focus on this idea, as I said before, is, is does it still make sense, right? Because the whole goal of incentive compensation is to incent more production. Sure. Right? And it doesn't seem like it's doing that, right? I mean, there's if we look at the output, and I'll, I'll call the output, uh, productivity. Let's say the dollars of revenue generated per hour of selling time by a rep today versus 20, 30, 40 plus years ago. I don't think it's any difference. Right. It yeah. may, may even be less today. Yeah. So, what then really is the value of the incentive if it's not achieving the goal of, of helping people achieve more, right? Give them the incentive to achieve more. And that's why I, I think that. There are lots of conversations taking place. We had people on the show talk about before is is it seems like the idea is just sort of fundamentally broken in, in many respects. It's an expectation, but when you look at what the value, and that's why I give that one example. You know, if you if you have a complex deal, and I worked in a company years and decades ago, a startup uh, that were selling very complex systems, you know, denominated in the millions of dollars, and it was a truly a team sale. Yeah, and, and I was running sales, and we didn't pay a commission to our sellers because when we looked at the value contribution to getting the deal, I said across the finish line, they didn't play a bigger role than sales yeah. engineering or other people. Yeah, so you couldn't really justify saying, "Well, look, we're gonna." They still got nicely compensated, and they got participation in a bonus pool that everybody could sort of participate in, but it didn't make sense to pay commission in that respect. Uh, and I think there's lots of Things like that out there where, yeah, we're just sort of mindlessly paying salespeople for a job that, you know, they're not even doing all of it. Now, I could certainly see on the other end where it's something a little more transactional. The seller is is uh, very self-sufficient. You know, they can basically execute from start to finish without a lot of resources coming from the rest of the company. Product serving off the shelf product. Hey, I think it makes a lot of sense there. But yeah, it's I- like. We're applying it uniformly across the board, and I said, if we want to be modern about it, it doesn't really seem to be very modern. 
I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head on the business model and what it looks like. You've had Scott Lease on on the show, and he's mm-hmm. a very transactional sales leader. And uh, I think a lot of it is uh, is all about uh, what is motivating that team in that moment. And it absolutely, on a day to day standpoint, because they see that number tick, there's absolutely uh, metric. There's absolutely um, results that show that that type of commission plan setting and that type of environment makes sense. Uh, I've have a little bit of a tweener experience where our average deal size were in the 12 to $20,000 range mm-hmm. and different competitions and different spiffs every single month. Uh, and I was a big believer in the sales acceleration formula. So this actually talks sure. to what you're talking about with, with Mark Roberges, where he looks yep. at the customer journey all the way through and how do you incentivize across that? I, I, I really agree that if if you're just putting together a comp plan because well that's what all that's just what sales teams do then you're probably not looking at it correctly however if you're looking at the role and what that person does and their co- value contribution and you're doing a little bit of experimenting and testing all the way what you will find because there's lots of studies on this that sales folks that put down their goals that write down their goals will have a more productive outcome the challenge is you can't replace those goal settings with just a comp plan. And I think that's the fundamental difference between the two. Well, but I also think, though, that you know, some of those same studies, when they talk about yeah, the value of setting goals, has found that money is not the primary motivator. Right, exactly. For most people, for most people in sales. Yep. And so you know, I, it's like we get people in there and then create these expectations where if it was the expectation was set differently and saying, yeah, it's still a well-compensated position. Yep. But, um, yeah, there's lots of other ways to find fulfillment in this job and in this role that aren't tied to money. You're 100% correct. And, and even more to that is there's, there's two parts to that. Uh, money is, is, for salespeople even, is not usually the reason people leave. It can be a catalyst. You can be fed up with it. Sure. But it's what you said. It's, there's actually three things. It's the big picture of the company. Do I believe in what this company is doing? Mm-hmm. The people that I work with, my peers, not just my boss, people quit bosses. That's one thing for sure. Right. But the people that I work with, the sales peers that I have on the team, and then sure. am I learning and growing and through curiosity. Right. And so you have those three things, you're going to be pretty happy. And money's kind of an aside to that, all of those, uh, all of those three things. Um, but you're, you also nailed it because it's, it's not necessarily the money. It's like the goal. So an example would be I uh, had a sales rep, and I just brought this example up recently. Um, and she was a really good seller, but she was just like she, – she, she, she was very roller coaster. She was not consistent. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I wanted to get her a little bit more consistent, but I also knew that she had it in her just to crush it and be our top seller. We had like 75 people on the team. So I said, Emily, look. Let's set a goal of uh, $100,000. What do you want for $100,000? She wanted a $1,700 purse. So I was like, okay, you sell $100,000. I let, we'll, we'll, we'll get the purse. So every day she had this whiteboard that she would come in and tick off all the way across. And she, mm-hmm. had, she, had, she had sold $135,000, $140,000 that month. It wasn't the money, the, the comp plan itself, but it was the goal. So my point to, uh, to you is like it is a little bit more complicated when you start to look at roles and what their value contribution and what they're doing. And it takes a really strong sales leader to tie all those things together. But I would argue not putting together a comp plan is, is kind of a little bit of a, of a lazy way on one hand. And putting together a comp plan that no one understands is also lazy. So it's just... It just takes a lot of work and effort for sales leaders to align their teams on this. That's what it really comes down to, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I just, I just think there needs to be a broader discussion about the role of compensation in sales, and it, it sort of starts, you know, getting back to quota. I mean, it's does quota serve a purpose anymore? Does it? What do you think? No. <laughs> is that for all teams? Is that across the board, or is that just for the teams you've seen? Well, I mean, I think there again. I think for perhaps for some that it might be a little more transactional. But but I mean, let's look at at quota. Are you familiar with Goodhart's law? No. All right. So Charles Goodhart was a British economist. I think this came up with this back in 1965, and this is 
since apparently based on what I've read, has been mathematically proven out, which is that his law was is that when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure. Hmm. All right, and that's a perfect description of, of quota. And the reason it starts losing value is that people change their behaviors due to the goal. So when this measure becomes a target, people optimize their processes to attain the target. Yeah. I mean, that becomes the goal. But they could be capable of producing at a much higher rate, but they change their process to achieve the goal. Yeah. And so you could argue that setting quotas actually suppresses potential revenue production in most sales teams. But because we've been so bound up in our, our processes, we actually have this situation where you know, so few people are hitting quotas because of the way they're, they're artificially set, you know, with, with lack of science in most cases, that, yeah, okay, gosh, you look at CSO Insights reports, fewer than 50% of sales, you know, B2B sales reps are making quota. We know mathematically it's it's sort of a suppressant of, of productivity. Why do we still use it? Well, I, the measures becoming targets is is a fascinating experience. I can only tell from my anecdotal personal experience on this outside of what it had because I don't disagree with you on the fifty percent less than quota. But I I would argue is less about what the target is and and more about uh, the company culture, the company team, the leadership. Uh, the hiring and recruiting practices, the onboarding and the training um, versus what you set the target. Target just becomes a missing targets become a symptom of a lot of different things. And those, oh, yeah, a lot, lot, of, lot of things. I, um, but I will say that, I, and I've, you know, I, I, again, I have a more of a transactional view of it in office of the everyone's there on the last day of the month. And yeah, this is a part of it where you close 60% of your business on the last day of the month or. 60% in the last two weeks of a quarter, mm-hmm. like that, that fits your model of like, that's broken. That is broken mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And of the buyer experience. So let me actually stop here and say, well, my company sure. very much tied to, uh, to having that, that, um, to having targets, to having goals. We ourselves have a very customer journey viewpoint where mm-hmm. as a buyer, you can try our service if you're an individual, you can use it for free forever. I mean, it has like a Slack, like, uh, and Asana and Dropbox right. type of view on it. I do that on purpose because I, where I actually think it's broken, and this is more to deal with products, is not the sales team so much as the product and the end user and building a product for the end user. So what I actually think is broken in targets and quotas is that mm-hmm. – People push over the line, do the heroic sell, get contract signed, and throw it over the fence to the CS team, and then right. the customer churns out. And you know, Trendkite had twenty percent churn, so like we were miserable in this area. We had a great outcome, right. but churn was was, and that was something that I learned was, oh, you have to bring this as a sales team. You have to bring the customer pain into the sales world all the way through the life cycle of it, and the, if you set exorbitant targets on the new business, then you're, you're absolutely right. That's what they're focused in on. But if you identify where they, you as a CS person or a seller are making the end user happier and you target off of those things, then that changes it. And I, so I go back to what your original point was, sure. is it broken? Um, I don't think it's, it's necessarily broken to do it, but I think what, what folks are thinking about how to do it is broken for sure. Well, but what's, yeah, I think you have to think and, and look at what, what is, what is quota? I mean, ostensibly, quota is a measure of performance and sales supposed to be a, and sales management, let's say, sales leadership should be all about how do we improve individual performance? Sure. But if but if we denominate performance with the wrong measure and the wrong metric, it's like we start getting the situation we're in now where we're not really ever improving. So I'm I'm fixated on this idea of productivity. Mm-hmm. And yep. years and years ago. And productivity using the classic definition of productivity, which is a rate of output per unit of input, not quantity of things that we do. And as is used in sales. So I measure managed teams where we 
we measured dollars of revenue generated per hour of sales time. Yeah. Was that, did that work? Yeah. Yeah. But absolutely. And the reason it worked was, is that as a manager, you knew what was, what was working, what was effective. I mean, I could have two sellers that both producing a million dollars a year in revenue, but one was doing it in half the time. One was one, and we what we did is we tracked all the resources used by the company. So basically, people kept timesheets. Yeah, and so I knew, yeah, this guy may have used you know less than half of his own time, but he used thirty percent more resources from the rest of the company. He wasn't as self sufficient. I love that, it's and. Great. So then you set up a situation where you say, okay, well, now we're not constrained by quotas anymore because what I want this person to do, if they've got a certain productivity factor, I can calculate the number of actual selling hours I anticipate they'll have during a year. And I multiply that by the same factors because these are all individualized factors for the rest of the team. Now I've got a real idea of what the productive capacity of my sales team is. It's no longer quota times 10 people and I'll factor it by 80% because most of them won't make it. It's no, this is, this is how these people produce the real thing. And, and if I can scale that, so then what you start looking at, well, geez, how do we compensate in that type of environment? Well, for me, one of the ways you want to do that is say, I want to compensate my sellers on improving their productivity Mm -hmm. because if they can generate more dollars of revenue per hour of selling time, that means that they're taking responsibility for doing the things they need to do to improve their productivity. They're yeah. learning, they're engaging with new new techniques, new skills, they're you know getting better at asking questions, whatever the dimension of the selling process is. Well, suddenly that starts making a lot of sense because the goal is individualized. The goal is, yeah, I need to improve what I'm doing today. And I've got a very specific way to measure it. And it's not based on some aggregate quota, but on yeah, you know, my specific work. Yeah. You I mean that's that is the whole thesis of cracking the sales management code, uh, which is a which is a great book that Yeah, I've had Jason on the show. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. You did. Uh so uh, Jason um and his uh co co authored it with I forget her name. Uh but they have this analogy which I absolutely love and I take with me which is, okay, so so many sales leaders focus on results. Results, they have the war room of results. Everyone has results. Mm. Share, share of wallets, new logo acquisition, blah, 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 blah. But that's like, that's the symptom of whatever the team did. It's, only, it's to a T what you described. And so it backs up and they have this great analogy in the book where activities drive objectives, drive results, where my daughter comes home with a B on her report card. I can't snap my fingers and change that to an A. That's never going to happen. But if she has a weekly report in math or a weekly quiz, sorry, in math, and I study with her for 30 minutes a day, that's the activity, then she'll get an A on that quiz every Friday. So I just need to spend 30 minutes with her every, and I need to measure that because I'll just measure that, mm-hmm. which will drive objectives, which will drive results, activities, objectives, results. I 100% buy into exactly how you're thinking about uh, how that, that, that's thought about. Um, and if you can quantify what that repeat repeatable sales methodology is on productivity piece of it, you can start to see, okay, this is what an ideal seller will look like. This is what a, a challenger sells model, whatever model you do, Sandler, whatever you do, you take that and then you can bucket it. If you're able to actually do that for your organization, as you scroll and you have to do this constantly, it's a constant exercise. I do believe the goal of the quota and the target is really to create that aligned methodology, that A to Z selling, so that you know that that productive person that you had, you know if they go through these these checklist items and this is how they sell, this is what their output will be at the mm-hmm. end of any given period. And if you if you can do that accurately, which again, we've talked about this, most sales teams cannot do that accurately, but if you can do that accurately, then the quota makes sense, in, in my opinion. But that's that's how I, I view it in the same lens. I just I think it just not a lot of teams get there. Yeah, I, mean, I think the difference the way I look at it is though is that quota becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Right? If you set out to sell hundred thousand dollars worth in a year, yeah, you'll sell hundred thousand. Yeah, you might have somebody might go over and you got the you know occasional people that are crushing quota. 
But in general, people are aiming toward that target. With the way I described it, there is no target. There yeah. is per hour, right? I mean, when you look at an aggregate like that, it's like every time I interact with a prospect, I've got to do better, right? So what do I need to do to do better? It sort of defies a, a, a you know, common sales process to some degree. But fact is, you know, those that are sellers or are consistently good are doing something unique anyway. Mm. I mean, I, I, I you know, dispute any sales leader who says, oh, the process is, is king and people need, sellers need the process to scale. And it's like, no, they don't. I mean, they, they know sort of what the process is, but if you look at your top 20%, I guarantee they're all doing it a little bit different mm-hmm. because yeah. they're becoming the best version of themselves. That's how they've succeeded. Not yep. by becoming the best version of the idealized challenger salesperson that you think they should be. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think when you make a target that is very individualized, like this productivity that, that I've used, is that people feel more autonomy and, and more empowered to succeed. Yeah. You're still, in your model, though, you're suggesting based on the productivity, there's still a level of variable component that people in your sales team would make different levels, or would they all make the exact same? Uh, I've, in my teams, I, it was always sort of pretty individualized. Right. So they, um, so at the end of the year, they, there was, there was, did they, was that, uh, transparent? Did they know who was performing better than others? Uh, in aggregate they did. Yeah. Cause everybody knows, right. But just, I mean, that was just based on the, the, the revenue number or was that based on the, the productivity number that you showed them? Uh, based on the revenue numbers, everybody sort of knew, but they didn't know the productivity factor necessarily. No. Okay. So based on the revenue numbers, they, they had a sense of like who was doing better and they had a second sense of the pecking order. Yeah. Was there a performance plan where you said, Hey, these five, these five folks are not performing to code to like whatever our, our code is. Yeah. Yep. Was that based on productivity or was that based on revenue? Uh, it was really based on productivity. That's interesting. It's based on a, a number of factors, actually. I mean, it was not, it was revenue, it was productivity, it was uh, planning based on, it's based on execution of their plan. Um, yeah, I mean, I worked for one <laughs> one startup where I'd, I was in another role with the startup and I was brought in to run sales for this one group. And, and yeah, we, yeah, the productivity was very, very low. And, but we sort of made the decision based on that and based on these other factors of terms of engagement and execution of their plans and so on is, yeah, we had five salespeople, all but one left. Um, but then with just that person and one other and, and myself, yeah, we, Grew bookings uh, <laughs> ten times the next year. Yeah, ten x next year. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think when people are aligned on this idea of, and it was hard. That was hard for some people to really adjust to that. Is they were accustomed to selling in that sort of quota environment, and when the emphasis then became on how effective are you really being, and how are you growing and developing, and how are you investing in getting better. Uh, it was hard for them. It was yeah. very hard for them because it, it seemed it seemed too just too different from what they're accustomed to. But and that's if a I were a seller, right? that's the 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 issue. You, you, and the the kind of the big issue is the momentum of it. And you when you go to recruit, and I'd be interested in that piece of it. You go to recruit for this person, this type of person. I mean, I would probably just start with like account managers or or folks that are that are a little bit more. Um, I mean, I hate to use this word, relationship builders in that regard, or, and obviously work ethic and agility and all the things you need for sellers probably comes into it. But the traditional seller wouldn't fit into that box then, for sure. Well, what's traditional, right? And that's, yeah, I mean, I've sort of considered myself in my career non-traditional seller, but, yeah, you know, very, very successful. Yeah. Uh because, but I did things my way. I mean, I've written about this a lot. Is is I had I 
demanded the autonomy to develop the way that I wanted to develop. So for me, when I'm hiring people like that, is yeah, I want people who are self-sufficient but curious and open to change and adapt quickly to change. And that's that's our, I think, the sales environment we're in. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we're so focused on process, what we tend, what gets lost in translation, I believe, is that this whole idea that every opportunity is unique. Yeah. Yeah. If we think that every customer is just like every other customer, just because they fit our our uh, our persona. Yeah, I think this is where sellers miss the ball increasingly these days because that's the way they're taught. Instead of saying every situation has its unique aspects to it, how do you operate in the moment to take advantage of those to help the customer achieve what they want? Have you? Uh, is there anywhere you've looked at, like from a coaching tree? So obviously, these sellers that you've developed have gone on to be sales leaders themselves and taken your that playbook to other companies. And some have had massive success. Well, some have. That's the thing. Some have, and probably some haven't. And yeah. doing a comparison between those two would be pretty interesting, just to see how that nets out. Actually, yeah, most most of them, not maybe not surprisingly, have gone on to be entrepreneurs. Yeah, I've had a sim- similar. In uh, there's a handful of sales managers from Trendkite that are all entrepreneurs as well. It is, it is an interesting share over carryover on the gene piece of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I mean, you bring up a lot, lots of good points on this. I, I think that the type of sell and what you're doing and how you're doing it and the culture of the team mm-hmm. is radically more important than, than just like putting a number on the, on the whiteboard. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, unfortunately, though, I think the, the culture in too many instances where people I talk to on the show and other people I talk to, yeah, hundreds of people outside of this every year that are running teams, it's, it's um, you know, they want to substitute process and technology and they think that's culture. Yeah. And it's not. No. Right. I mean, yeah, it, it becomes a culture, but it's not a healthy culture. And, no. and I, so I think, and this is a, <laughs> conversation I've had with you know people that sell sales technology and so on is that sort of trying to push back on this idea that that we're getting a little bit lazy and want to use the technology to sort of substitute for the judgment of the salesperson. And as soon as we start down that track, then yeah, we are going to continue to have these performance issues because it's all going to be about activity and and results as opposed to sure. how do we get better at what we're doing. Yeah. And so I think the, the thing to, to keep in mind as, as it relates, uh, so Quotapath, which is uh, not calling out anything specific, but it's not an outreach. It's not a sales loft. It's not an mm-hmm. activity driver. I, I, the thing that I like to liken it is it's a little bit like a mint.com for the sales team. It's a portfolio mm-hmm. of their wins and how they've done. It shows their, their career metrics. We have a, a part of the app called MyPath, which does exactly that. It's mm-hmm. the aspirational career stuff that uh, isn't as quantifiable as as lots of these other things or, or Salesforce right. report can tell you. Um, and I agree full, wholeheartedly that there's. I started my career. We used our own CRM. Meltwater had their own CRM. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have these email marketing, and I had a piece of paper that I would check off my productivity and activities that I had that I had to send in every week to my manager of what I was doing. And, and I looked left and right and I was like, wait, what is this person doing? What is this person doing? Um, and that was helpful, but I was just kind of managing it and doing myself and figuring that out altogether. I think along the same lines where culture isn't technology, it isn't those things. It's the same with an office environment. You can have a really fun office environment with ping pong and everything. But if you don't have like the right people in the right place, the mentorship, mm-hmm. the coaching and support, to go on technology office, none of, all that stuff is meaningless. Those are the important things. I'm, I'm fairly confident we share that that viewpoint. Oh yeah, that. no, I think that that again the the slippery slope that I think we're embarked on is that coaching has become all about the metrics. Lazy, yeah, it's a lazy, it's a lazy activity. As, as, as opposed to saying, what do you want to achieve, and how can I? <laughs> what's the fastest way I can help you achieve that? And achieve meaning in your life, at work, whatever, right? 
what's what's within my power to be able to help you achieve that? And these discussions just don't happen frequently enough. And um, happen yeah. less now, a lot less yeah. now. Yeah, I think they happen less now, and I think that is yeah, this yeah sort of loosely ties into what we're talking about today. Because yeah, if we want to have cultures of that are focused on performance, and I think this is where we sort of miss the boat in sales and have. It's not new. This is not new. This has been the case, but it shouldn't be as much these days. Is you know, look at the revolution in professional sports, and this is a topic I bring up frequently on the show. The revolution in professional sports, soccer, for instance, my sport that I follow religiously is is in the last 10, 20 years, it's all been about performance improvement. Yeah. And you have these specialized coaches and detailed video analytics and data analytics. They track all their activity. They know when they should rest, when they should work harder, you know, in training. And, you know, they can track their performance throughout a game. But then they came out with Curry last week. (laughs) Say that again. Did you th- see the thing that came out with Steph Curry last week? That he, I think so. He, he, uh, he has trained himself to get his heart rate down to 80 during timeouts. Yeah, right. I saw that. Yeah. His second wind <laughs> all the way through. But it's, it's very true. But it's, but it's these types of things that just don't exist in sales. And so, you know, further reliance on things like quotas, you know, sort of alarming because, again, we're just focused on this, this idea of these discrete set of results as opposed to saying, well, how do we make, how do we really make these people better? And I think we're clueless in general uh, in this profession about how do we do that on a consistent basis? There are people that manage to do it themselves, whether they do my case, I did have a couple of mentors that were really key, but also I was immensely curious and reading books all the time and trying to learn anywhere I could and (laughs) trying to learn from my experience. But, but um, you know, we have to, we have to get back to this place or get to this place where, you know, the, the coaches are really focused on how do I make this individual, how do I help them perform better? Yeah. And we haven't cracked that, that code yet. Do you think, so there's, I mean, there's an easy, easy kind of like glooming red button that I see in this is that we typically make our best sellers coaches and our best sellers are our best sellers for a reason. And we we harp on active listening. We harp on all of these things. But when you put then individual sellers into a sales manager, they they don't take their own advice on how to sell in working with their team, which is mm-hmm. listening to their team. Uh, so it's kind of it's just one of those things where it's a catch twenty two in some regard. Where I I've seen that happen all the time. I mean, I did all my one-on-ones walking. I was I, I right. was very clear on on not distracting and like wanted to make sure, which is why working inside is is tough. Um, so I think I think part of that is that we just have done a really bad job as like let's say VPs or sales leaders itself is cultivating those next line frontline managers to do it. It's what you said. It's oh. the reliance on technology. Well, absolutely. Well, I think the I think it's a broader problem, and in my mind, and and the broader problem is that we don't develop the managers, right? We don't we don't have this emphasis on performance improvement. It's it's there increasing number of books being written about performance improvement, and there's there's increasing science behind it. Uh, yeah, we don't train managers in, in how to do that, how to coach improve performance. Yeah. We don't, we don't teach sales VPs. We just, and so we promote people into these roles and we assume since they have the role and the title that they know what to do mm-hmm. yeah. and they, they don't. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfair to everybody up and down the chain to, to make these assumptions. And I like to sort of give the, the hypothetical question, which you know, I'll ask you is, is, you know, we spend, Figure I saw is twenty billion dollars a year to on sales training in the United States, of which maybe ten percent spent on training managers, maybe five percent spent on training sales managers. What if we flipped that ratio? What if we spent ninety percent of that twenty billion dollars on training and coaching our sales bosses how to become performance coaches, performance improvement coaches? And gave them the the tools and the skills to do that. We'd probably be much better off. 
Yeah. We'd probably have sellers perform much higher levels when they had that type of support to help them grow. You asked the question at the beginning of this of like, what have we seen change about quotas and, and move? I actually will say, what will we see change post COVID in like, and just what health sales teams performs is that middle level manager has become exposed in a lot of ways. They've now, mm-hmm. uh, when they've taken on their team, they could kind of hide uh, when it's more of an office environment. But now it's like, Sailors, wait, what is this manager doing again? And wait, how how am I trying to make them successful? I've been so much spending so much time, and this is where you absolutely do nail it, so much time on that target that I haven't been able to focus on my team So because I'm always rushing to the next thing all the way through. And so that I have seen happen where um, a, a company that I know really well, I won't name names, but they fired there, I think there were 12 sales managers and they fired six of them. They just got rid of them uh, yeah. over the summer. And they just realized that there was like not a lot of value add that the, those people. So it wasn't about the spend on technology or the value add of the individual contributor. It was about the value add of that middle level manager, frontline manager, not spending enough time with their team in actually helping and coaching, coaching them up. So yeah. I really agree with it. I don't know the answer to your question of what happens if you flip it. I I um I loved the uh, con- sales conferences were becoming overblown uh, prior to yep. COVID, but I didn't see a lot of it was focused maybe on the SDR specific to SDR, or maybe there were uh, specific on on closers and, and and sales folks, but I didn't see much on the sales management of what you're you're proposing, and I think that. We probably, someone is going to listen to this and say, I'm going to go build a conference on sales management coaching and do well, make millions of dollars, baby. I don't know. I, I agree with your assessment that, that yeah, the conferences generally were uh, overly fixated on top of funnel activities, Yep. which, you know, enough already. I mean, yeah. enough on. noise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, I, I like to say that we know that the sales profession's on the right track when the big conference everybody wants to go to is called Discovery and Qualification. And yeah, we could have a conference just on that. And yep. that would be way more productive than agree. Most important Yep. Yeah, more talk. Because that's where the actual selling happens. And that and again, I think that's just another trend that is starting starting to change a little bit. That's where the real learning happens, though. So when you looked at your productivity metrics, if someone was spending half the time and they were spending half the time, but they were still crushing it on revenue, I would venture to bet that they spent, they understood their client's business model, the success metrics, what was going to make mm-hmm. your product a win for them, and they could articulate it like that. So, oh, ab- yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's a whole separate conversation to have, but thing that sellers and this is you know comes from managers not understanding this thus they can't impart it to sellers is that is that and this has been researched you know by a guy won a Nobel Prize based on this is that is that basically people's goal in life, buyers' goal in life is to make a good decision quickly. Not mm-hmm. the best decision, not the optimal decision. It was all based on Herbert Simon and won Nobel Prize, right? So about this thing called bounded rationality yeah. and the constraints that people have on their decision making. But if you can be the seller to the point you made, if you can be the, the seller that helps the buyer understand first how their solution meets the requirements and is sufficient to help them achieve their desired business goals, they'll stop looking. And they'll buy. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, but most salespeople don't understand that. I mean, it's part of a bigger problem that exists in terms of how they, how sellers conceptualize what the buyers are trying to achieve, but it's not taught and it's a huge part of performance. And so it's just, yeah, we just need to up that game across the board. But the challenge is always that you know, CFOs and CEOs don't want to invest that much in sales. You know, if they can uh, feed it as little as possible and still hit the targets, they're happy. But the, then the question goes further that you ask is, how do you, if you could spend 90% of your training budget on getting managers to be able to coach on what you just articulated that mm. won a prize, what would that result in? 
And what would that look like? I think there's absolutely a whole plethora of awesomeness that could wait on the other side of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that, again, not to overdo the sports connection, but, I mean, you look at at coaches that come in and transform organizations. It's, yeah, take my favorite soccer club, Liverpool. yeah, it's they focus on. They have an expression they talk about this. Yeah, you know, we 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 train the person before we train the football player, right? So they focus on just is this how do we help this person become a good human being, which is so essential for sellers, right? In order to make connections with other human beings, and then we're going to layer on the skills in a very specialized fashion. We're going to specialized coaches to help them. I mean, I think how we structure look how we structure sales management needs to change. You know, yeah. why do we have a single sales manager um, in the way, in the role they have? Well, we should have specialized coaches in in organizations, coaches that that really understand elements of the sales process or perform, elements of performance improvement that, that would help sellers perform better. Did you organize your teams in like pods Is that was, and then have specialized, almost a matrix style where you had a manager that oversaw the whole pod, but then had specialized coaches or mentors for each role. Well, I would, but I, I didn't at that time. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were, just, we were, we were, we were startups. Yeah. Being very frugal with our dollars. I, we are, uh, that is actually where we're putting our money on the growth side. So I won't even call us the sales team, but on the growth side is, uh, on the pod. Like I really feel strongly. I actually would, pinpoint the CS onboarding role as our, our most critical role instead of sales or even account management. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where the make or break is for us, well, for lots of organizations. But I know sure. for us that first 30 days, so, so critical um, for, for our team. So it, it's, we've done a lot of talking over the last year on the journey. Like, okay, we're going to invest very heavily into making sure that that role is successful um, because then our customer. Even, right. But even there in the CS role is, is, yeah, I know some companies are doing this, but I, I haven't seen enough of them do it to say it's it's a trend. Is hey, who's who's providing? Yeah, you know, I'll call it sales training, but it's really more than that for their account managers, right? Yeah. In the CF role, that who understand okay, well, how do I go into an account and develop new opportunities inside that account? Yeah, it's it's sales, it's it's business acumen, it's it's a number of things, and. We just need to provide more tools to help them do that because, yeah, this is where the majority of the revenue is coming, right? Right. So, yeah. especially as SaaS companies, what are we doing to help these people? And when may we need to change the nature of who we hire into those roles? Right? It's, novel. It's, it's such a novel thing when you think about it and when you articulate it that way. But then, then the question is, why is that not happening? Why are we not doing that? Well, we're just we're stuck. And that's, that's just, I think we're at a point now we're really stuck. We've been sort of in this, this, uh, model for 10, 15 years or the specialized sales roles, specialized CS, all good to some degree, but yeah, we're now seeing increasing number of companies saying, yeah, you know, we got a little higher end, more complex product. The, that didn't really work for us. So we're switching, maybe we have more full cycle reps uh, or we are using some sort of ABM motion with, with you know, teams or something, but it's, you know, it's not, we're migrating away from what we were doing before. And I think on the CS side, it's, it's ripe for that. Yeah. It's, it's um, yeah, it's a new business development role within, within an account. Yeah. That's, and that's, and that, that should be, it should be conceptualized that way. And then you'd say, oh, well, then we should be hiring a different different level person for that. Well, I we're just starting our go-to-market fit journey at, personally at Quotapath. But I will get back to you on that exact role in one year's time. <laughs> All right. Well, however I can help you, let me know. <laughs> I'm going to show for that. But I, I, I totally I love it. I dig that whole thesis around it because it is the right. And I don't believe that we're stuck. I don't agree with that. I think the, the idea of stuck is that well, we're, we're more and more sales tools, more and more things. And so it's just like stuck as in things are just being thrown. But I, I have seen enough 
teams, certainly during COVID, that are thinking about it in more of a, um, yeah, they still have quotas of targets. Obviously, there are customers, but they are thinking about it in more of a training and more of a, a customer journey and more, where do I specialize and put dollars? I, and I know this because it's not just new business teams that are using QuotaPath now. Now we have CS teams that have a variable sure. component or account management, of course. Well, they should. Also, yeah. we're seeing expand. Yeah, I, I mean, have a variable co- component to the whole company for sure. See what happens. Just experiment with it. But uh, we are we are seeing that um, more and more to be the trend. Well, I think that just in closing, sort of the idea of being stuck is that you know as we start talking about is is you know let's look at. Quota, right? We're stuck. There, there's a better way to do it. And no one, I don't say no one, very few people. There are some people having conversations increasingly about it in terms of also just about maybe even redefining how the relationship between seller and employers, uh, top sales talent, um, I think will become more mobile mm-hmm. in different ways and compensated differently than they currently are on uh, much more of a value basis. Um, so there are you know, inklings of, of things happening. I think that, you know, just look at the way most companies conceptualize the, their sales process. I mean, if you look at it, go into a CRM system, Salesforce or wherever, and look at the steps of the sales process, hey, I was using that same sales process back in 1977. Band, med anything? <laughs> I mean, all that stuff. It's like... All that. Yeah, I and know. so we want to say... Yeah, we're in a modern sales world, but all we've done is taken the same processes and automated them by and large. Yeah. And so we need to think differently. Yeah, it's it's just that's the bottom line is where we just need to think differently about all of this. And there's so many aspects of it, whether it's like I said, the sales process or quota and challenge the assumptions because yeah, I've not seen I said, any data to the contrary, but everything that I see and all the work that I do says, yeah, we just haven't gotten better in decades yeah. in sales. And it shouldn't be that way because we have the advantage of all this technology. So why don't we learn how to use it and put it to use in such a way combined with mod- truly modern ways of looking at uh, our customers and how we help them that make a difference? You know, it's easy to see it like there's a bit very much a difference where you look at marketing and the different types of roles in marketing that have popped up and digitized over the years and growth hacking and ABM and all this mm. obviously trendy stuff, but it, it is that you haven't seen that, that same blueprint um, applied very much on the sales uh, sales circuit. So I, 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 I yeah, that's yeah. You're right. We're just, we're just hung up. I mean, I, I <laughs> one of my favorite examples and we'll unfortunately have to go but it's 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 been a pleasure talking to you but it's you know we still have so many people talking about yeah we're hiring people into hunter roles right (laughs) and this one's always driven me crazy because so i was i've written something i haven't posted it yet but i've done a little bit of research and so you know the number one form of hunting in the united states is deer hunting Mm -hmm. by far three to one i'm in pennsylvania this is true this is very true yeah i grew up in wisconsin Deer hunting, very big in Wisconsin. And uh, and you look at deer hunting today, how they do it. Well, everybody hunts from stands. Mm-hmm. So they go out and they may scout an area or may they have a stand that's been existing for a while, but they put up the stand and they go out and use you know various means to attract the deer to come by. It's oftentimes like doe urine they, right. they spread on yep. places and so on. And so... The hunter today, the modern hunter today, is they sit in a stand and they wait for the deer to come to them. Now, doesn't that sound like inbound? <laughs> it's, it's surely not walking around like cavemen with rocks in your hands and throwing them at elephants. <laughs> but, but we want to hire hunters. But the hunters sit in stands and wait for the deer to come to them. <laughs> it's so very, very true. We need, we need a different word to describe what we want people to do. Because uh, hunting ain't it. Yeah, anyway, I agree. I like it. That's my my irony of the day. I All right, AJ, been fantastic talking with you. So, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, LinkedIn is really the only platform, the social media platform I'm on. But if you write me a personal note, uh, do a little research and discovery, and uh, and and think about it in a hunting 
mentality, I guess, uh, I'll respond. I'm very responsive on, on LinkedIn. All right. Perfect. Well, AJ, thank you very much. Thanks, Andy. I really appreciate it. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we are ever so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guest, AJ Bruno, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, we'd appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.